Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, again, uh, great to be here with you guys as we uh, gather just to worship our Lord and Savior. It is a blessing and a joy uh, just to gather as a body of believers. This morning, we're going to begin to look at details that transpired the morning that our Savior, Jesus Christ, would ultimately lay down his life upon the cross of Calvary, taking upon himself the sins of all humanity. Last week, we finished off chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke by looking at the details that surrounded Jesus's religious trials. If you recall, Jesus faced three different religious trials that were overseen by three different leaders or entities, groups. The first trial occurred at the house of Annas, the father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas. Annas was a man of great prestige and power, a man of great influence upon the Jewish people. He had previously served as high priest in Jerusalem, but had been deposed by a uh, Roman authority in the area, and so he no longer held the official title of high priest as far as the Romans were concerned. But to the Jews, he was still uh, seen to have the same sort of clout and influence as he had as the high priest. Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his doctrine, but instead of answering Annas, Jesus replied how he had spoken openly uh, when he went and spoke and taught, and he said, hey, if you want to know what I said, go talk to the people. Gather some people around, and they'll be able to tell you what I said. Well, Jesus ended up being struck on uh, the face by one of the officers when he answered the high priest in such a manner. And Jesus actually challenged that officer, uh, proclaiming that everything he said was true, that it was accurate, and that he had no reason to strike him. Well, Annas then decided to send Jesus on his way to Caiaphas, where he would go through his second religious trial. And the second religious trial occurred in the middle of the night at the home of Caiaphas. He was the son-in-law of Annas and the one who currently was recognized as the official high priest uh, in Rome's eyes. And at the house of Caiaphas, the religious leaders tried their best to get some false witnesses to come together to corroborate a story that they could use against Jesus to claim that he had done something that was worthy of um, death. And they did it all to no avail. They could not get two people to agree upon a single story where they said Jesus was deserving of death. And that's when Caiaphas arose. He took matters into his own hands. He directly questioned Jesus, ultimately asking him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And when he says the son of the blessed, he's asking, are you the son of God? Are you of divine nature? And Jesus responded. He said, I am, right? Uh, identifying himself with the name of God, the great I am from the book of Exodus. And after hearing Jesus make this bold proclamation of who he was, Caiaphas tore his clothes. He called for a verdict from those who were gathered around, and they all agreed that Jesus was deserving of death. And this led to the third and final religious trial, which we read about last week at the end of chapter 22 in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' third religious trial was done first thing in the morning. As soon as there was a break of light in the day, the religious authorities gathered together for an official meeting of the Jewish Sanhedrin, where they sought to officially charge and sentence Jesus to death. The Sanhedrin demanded Jesus tell them whether or not he was the Christ. But Jesus knew that whatever he said, it would not make a difference. They had already made up their mind, whether he spoke to them or whether he asked them questions. He's like, this is nonsense, okay? This is all just for, for show, okay? And he would not engage them. But then they again, they pressured him. They said, are you then the Son of God? To which Jesus again affirmed, you rightly say that I am. And that was all they needed. They stated at the end of chapter 22 and verse 71, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And that's where we're going to pick up our account in Luke's gospel of what took place next. Jesus went through three religious trials, one before Annas, another before Caiaphas, and then the third and final one before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Okay, now Jesus is going to face three separate civil or political trials. He's going to come before two different political leaders 
Um, and in our study this morning, we're going to cover the first two of those trials. And Lord willing, we'll cover the details of the third trial and the verdict that came from it next week. So our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. And the title of our study that I've given uh, this morning is A Political Hot Potato. Okay, Jesus was a uh, situation nobody really wanted to deal with. Okay, the Sanhedrin tried to pass them on to Pilate. Pilate's going to try and pass them on Herod. Herod's going to try and pass them back to Pilate. And nobody wanted to deal with the situation. And so we have for ourselves this political hot potato. Will you all rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word? I'm going to read our text from my Bible. Please do your best to follow along in your own. Luke continues the details of what transpired early that fateful morning with the following in chapter 23, verse 1. It says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity to open up your word and allow your word to speak to us. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth in power. Lord, that your word would uh, accomplish the work that you desire to do Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your word would have for us, what your spirit would speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Here in our opening verse, verse 1, we are introduced to the Roman authority in charge uh, at this time uh, over this area. He will be the one to oversee the first of Jesus' political trials. It is a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. This isn't the first time we've come across Pontius Pilate through our study of the Gospel of Luke. He was actually mentioned as the governor of Judea during the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. He was mentioned again when people brought up a past incident where he mingled the blood of Galileans in with their sacrifices. We'll talk a little bit about that later. While we don't have much written about him in the gospel accounts, secular historians give us some insight into this man and his background. I want to share uh, what I was able to find with you. Pontius Pilate, he served as a type of governor over the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Historians identify Pilate as a procurator, and as procurator, he had full control in the province of Judea. Also, he was in charge of an army, which he actually had stationed at Caesarea Maritima, where he preferred to stay, but had a detachment of garrison duty at Jerusalem in the fortress Antonio, there upon the uh, Temple Mount. As procurator, Pontius Pilate had full powers of life and death, and he could reverse capital sentences that had been passed by the Sanhedrin, and he was the one that was needed in order to ratify any uh, capital punishments that the Sanhedrin had sentenced people to. And so he was a very intricate piece and a plan, part of the plan of the religious leaders. Now, history tells us that Pilate despised being in Jerusalem. He preferred staying in Caesarea, there along the coast, away from the citizens of Jerusalem. He actually would only take up residence in Jerusalem during the festivals. Uh, when the special holidays would come around, he would go to Jerusalem and stay there because Rome demanded it of him. 
During such times, he would actually bring additional troops with him to patrol the city, to keep the peace, uh, as the city would be inundated with masses of people coming to worship and observe the different Jewish festivals. Now, first century Jewish philosopher and writer uh, uh, Philo uh, described Pontius Pilate as, and I quote, by nature rigid and stubbornly harsh and of spiteful disposition and an exceedingly wrathful man. He also spoke of many ill acts of Pontius Pilate during his time as procurator. He writes of bribes and acts of pride, acts of violence, outrages of um, cases of spiteful treatment, constant murders without trial, in addition to ceaseless and the most grievous brutality. Pontius Pilate was a very evil and very malicious man, uh, history tells us. And knowing the kind of man that Pilate is reported to be, it helps us to better understand his actions and the situation that he's placed in from our text. Pilate had some difficulties in keeping things under control in Jerusalem, and the higher-ups in Rome were keeping a very close eye upon him at this time. Jewish historian Josephus Okay, tells of an incident where Pilate's army took winter quarters in Jerusalem, and during the night they set up images of Caesar there in Jerusalem around the temple and in the temple grounds area. And so in the morning when the Jews saw the images that had been set up there was quite an uproar. Multitudes thronged to Pilate's dwelling, demanding that the images be removed, for it was a violation of the commandment of God to set up images of worship. However, Pilate wouldn't listen to them. Okay? There was this stalemate between them, and it was only after six days of Jewish protest that Pilate sent his men to uh, surround the crowd, and he demanded that they either leave or that he would have them killed. And remarkably, history tells us that the Jews threw themselves upon the ground, and they laid their necks bare and said they would be very willingly take death rather than continue to allow their laws to be violated. And so Pilate eventually, just astonished at their resolution not to budge, he commanded that the images be brought back to the base of Caesarea. But this was a problem, okay? Word of this event got to Rome. Another incident that got Pontius in hot water was with the locals was a work project that he put together to build an aqueduct, okay? The people weren't against his idea of building an aqueduct, just the idea of from where the funds would come uh, to resource such an operation, Pilate actually planned on taking the money from the temple treasury to pay for the aqueduct. Of course, the Jewish people protested. Tens of thousands of people came out against Pilate demanding that he stop uh, this plan to use the temple treasury funds for this project because that money had been given to the Lord and for the Lord's work. Pilate again sent troops into the crowd, but this time he sent them in in regular apparel, concealing their daggers, the weapons that they had under their garments, and were told... Historians tell us that Pilate gave an order, a signal to them, and they all then attacked the people. And according to history, a great number of men were slain that day by the hands of Pilate's men. And so he is one that does not stand up to uh, rebellion, okay? And he has had a number of run-ins, especially with these religious leaders. And so word would spread, petitions would be sent to the higher-ups in Rome regarding a number of these types of incidents, and that is why Pontius Pilate was under a very close watch. He didn't have any wiggle room when it came to the authorities in Rome. Another incident against the Jews was likely to cost him his place as pure curator. And so that is Pilate and the basics of his story as the Sanhedrin bring Jesus before him. Now, actually, the first things that were said between Pilate and the Sanhedrin are not actually recorded for us here in Luke's gospel. We actually have to turn to the book of John to get the details of what first took place. And so if you'd like, you can turn with me to the gospel of John, chapter 18. It's the next book over. Um, I think I put the verses up on the screen, though, too, if you... Uh, would, but it's good to read it from the Bible too, okay? John 18, verses 29 through 32. We get the details of how things first unfolded as the Sanhedrin approached Pilate with Jesus in tow. Uh, this is what happened. Read along in um, verse 29 through 32. It says, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, 
If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. And so when Pilate first asked, okay, they, they show up on town, they, they get Pilate to come out. He asks, hey, what did this guy do? What has he done? The Sanhedrin didn't give a direct answer. They simply said, hey, if he wasn't a bad guy, if he wasn't an evildoer, we would have never wasted your time. Trust us, he's a bad guy, right? Remember that the charge they had officially come up with, it was blasphemy, right? In the religious trials, that's what they found him guilty of, blasphemy, because he associated himself as being the Son of God, as having divine nature, okay? But such a charge before Pilate as a Roman procurator would be laughed off, okay? He could care less about their religious beliefs and their religious practices, as long as you do it in peace and you don't bother the peace of Rome, okay, that they're trying to keep, he would care less, okay? And so they don't come right out and say what it is they've accused him of. Pilate didn't really care to get involved, and so he told the members of the Sanhedrin, uh, the religious elite there, to take Jesus and judge him according to their own law, as if to say, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with this matter, right? Pilate wants to keep himself out of any business dealing with the Jews and their religious observations. These religious leaders have proven to be too much of a headache for him in the past, and he just doesn't want to deal with them. But they respond saying to Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, this is a very interesting statement, for they actually did have the power to sentence people to death. And they actually did follow through with the death sentence when it came to Stephen in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, if you're familiar with that account, they took up stones and they executed Stephen for his blasphemy. Okay? The implication here is that it was not lawful for them to put anyone to death by means of crucifixion. They could have Jesus stoned to death. Okay? That was the traditional Jewish way of execution, but that would be too messy. It would bring them under scrutiny. Remember, there were still a number of people who were followers of Jesus, and they would take issue with their own religious leaders stoning Jesus. If they could get the Romans to crucify Jesus, then it creates an opportunity for them to distance themselves from the responsibility of Jesus' execution, right? If they, the followers of Jesus see him stoned to death, they're going to be like, the Jews did this. The religious leaders did this. But if they see Jesus crucified upon a Roman cross, then they'll be able to say, the Romans did this, right? And so it was a way for them to distance themselves from this responsibility. They wanted Pilate to do their dirty work for them. Another thing to consider was that the Jewish people believed it to be a divine curse upon someone to be hung upon a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21 states, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so they are wanting to not only, you know, distance themselves from this execution, but they're also wanting to add on this fact that this would be seen as a divine curse upon Jesus. Paul, in writing to the church in Galatia, he associated Jesus's crucifixion upon the cross with this exact law in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, he writes in Galatians chapter 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Peter and the other apostles referred to the cross as a tree in Acts 5.30, where they stated, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, right? Paul also refers to the cross as a tree in his speech to the people of Antioch and Pisidia, telling them of how Jesus was crucified and how they took his body down off the tree and they placed him in a tomb. And so not only would it create an opportunity to distance themselves from Jesus, but it would be seen as a curse from God above for anyone to be hanged upon a tree, upon a cross, so they wanted this to happen to Jesus. But in addition to all of that, and unbeknownst to the religious leaders, they were actually fulfilling prophecy. 
Okay? For Jesus mentioned on more than a few occasions that he would be betrayed to the religious leaders and handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified, not to be stoned. Okay? Jesus said to his disciples before entering Jerusalem, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify Okay. And the third day he will rise again. And so, Pilate, he now understands why they are bringing Jesus to him. They want to have Jesus crucified. Okay? And they need Pilate to be the one to make it happen. Well, what sort of crime could they say Jesus committed that would get Pontius Pilate to agree that Jesus was worthy of crucifixion? They need the him to ratify their judgment, okay? But if they said, well, he's, we found him guilty of blasphemy, he'd be like, I don't care, <laughs> right? You deal with it. And so what will they do? Well, that's where our text comes back into play in verse 2. In verse 2 of Luke chapter 23, it says, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king, so we'll stop right there. Here we see the religious leaders accuse Jesus of three very serious crimes that they hoped would get the attention of Pilate. First of all, they accused Jesus of being an insurrectionist, okay, a rebel. They accused him of perverting the nation. The meaning of that phrase, perverting the nation, it implies that Jesus was trying to lead a rebellion, that he was a separatist, trying to rally people to himself to get them to fight against the Roman occupation. Now, this accusation is completely false, right? Jesus didn't do nor teach anything like that. In fact, he taught really the opposite of that. He taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught people to love their neighbor and to love their enemies. He taught people to love your enemies and to bless those who curse you and to do good to those who hate you and to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. He taught people not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too, right? This is not a rebel. This is not someone who's fighting against and bucking against what's going on. He was not an insurrectionist, okay, coming against Rome. This was a flat-out lie on behalf of the religious authorities. Well, the second accusation was basically tax evasion, okay? They accused Jesus of going around telling people that they shouldn't have to pay taxes to Caesar, but that wasn't what Jesus taught at all. The religious leaders actually came to him earlier and they tried to trap him into saying something like that, but to no avail. When they asked Jesus if it was lawful to pay taxes or not, Jesus perfectly responded by asking them whose image and whose inscription was upon the denarius. You guys remember we looked at that in Luke chapter 20. And it was Jesus, he, they replied, well, it's Caesar's. Right? It's Caesar's image and Caesar's inscription. And so Jesus stated, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Okay? Give Caesar his money. That's what Jesus taught. But yet here they're trying to accuse him of saying that he went around telling people, don't give Caesar his money. Again, a completely false accusation. No proof whatsoever to it. The third accusation was one of treason, basically. They accused Jesus of claiming himself to be the Christ, a king. Now, this is the only accusation that actually somewhat resembles a truth, but it too is false in its implication. Jesus did claim to be Christ, and the name Christ is actually a title. It means the anointed one, okay? Um, it's uh, the Messiah, okay? It's the same exact, the Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one, Christ is Greek for anointed one. It means the anointed one. It's a title, a reference to the long-awaited king of the Jews, so he did claim to be a king, but not the kind of king that the people are trying to make him out to be. The accusation, or, or the implication of their accusation at least, is that Jesus is trying to claim that he's king over this land, okay? that he should be ruling and reigning instead of Rome or any of the appointed officials that Rome has put in place, people like Pilate, right? And people like Herod, who we'll talk about later on uh, in our text 
That was the implication, and that certainly was not true of Jesus. There's actually biblical evidence that Jesus didn't want to have anything to do with being the kind of king that these religious leaders were accusing him of. In the book of John, we read of how after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that the people wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him their king, right? And so, This very opportunity, this very thing that they are accusing him of, he had the opportunity to, you know, let them take him, you know, and be anointed as the king. But yet he didn't do that. We're told that he actually departed away from the group. He got away from them and went up into the mountains to be by himself alone because he wouldn't have, didn't want to have anything to do with their idea of what he would be as their king. Okay? And so we see, again, this third accusation, completely false, okay? Let's see how Pilate responds to these accusations against Jesus. Read verse 3 with me. It says, Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. Paul, or excuse me, Pilate seems to key in on that final accusation of the three, and he asked Jesus very plainly, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, the you is written emphatically here in the Greek. Pilate's question was one of shock and and surprise. Jesus didn't look the part of a king. Are you the king of the Jews? Somewhat like, well, you don't look the part. (laughs) This isn't adding up, right? Are you? And, And Jesus responded, it is as you say. But the wording here is actually very interesting. Again, you may know how the words it is as, are written in italics in some of your Bibles. That is because those words weren't part of the Greek manuscripts that were used for translation. They're actually English words that are added in for us to make sense of what Jesus actually said. He literally said, you say, and the you here is also emphatic, you say. Jesus' answer is a bit cryptic here in Luke's gospel. It's not as direct as our translation makes it out to seem. It's more of a yes with a qualification attached to it. And when we cross-reference the other gospel accounts, we find out that there was more, in fact, said than just this. According to John's gospel, Jesus told Pilate that he was a king, but that his kingdom was not of this world. He went on to say that it was for this cause that he was born and for this cause that he came into the world that he should bear witness to the truth. And so Jesus' answer was more of a yes I'm a king, but I'm not a king of this world, okay? And my main purpose is to come and to bear witness to the truth. And if you're familiar with the account there in John, you know how Pilate responded. He balked at the idea of truth. He stated, what is truth? And he, and he went out to the chief priests that had brought Jesus to him, and he stated, I find no fault in him at all. Take a look at verses 4 and 5 as we continue our way through our text. Verse 4 says, So Pilate said to the chief priests on the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, saying, Oh, excuse me. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Things are beginning to unravel for the uh, religious leaders here. They brought three of the worst possible accusations against Jesus, hoping that Pilate would immediately seize Jesus, sentence him to death upon the cross. But instead, after initially questioning Jesus, he comes out and he testifies that he finds no fault with him at all. And so the religious leaders, these authorities, they start to scramble a bit. They start throwing out other additional accusations, becoming more and more fierce in their attitudes and behavior. They claim that he stirs up the people through his teaching everywhere he goes, throughout all Judea and beginning up in Galilee. Now that word Galilee would be a hot button type of word. You hear the region or the area of Galilee, it would make you think for a second. And Galilee was, excuse me, Galilee was known as a hotbed for political zealots and rebels. Pilate, as alluded to earlier, had some run-ins with some people from Galilee that he had executed. He mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. Historians believe that what happened was these uh, insurrectionists that came from Galilee, they came down to offer their sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Pilate found them and he actually killed them as they were presenting their sacrifices 
basically mixing their blood with the blood of their sacrifices as they were offering um, their worship to God. And so he's had run-ins with these guys before, um, and it's not good. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about those from Galilee. He says, and I quote, the most, they are the most turbulent and seditious people, being upon all occasions ready to disturb the Roman authority. And so they are trying to associate Jesus, who had based much of his earthly ministry in the area of Galilee, with the zealots and the rebels in Galilee who were causing problems all the time for Rome. Luke's gospel doesn't tell us how Jesus responded, but in Matthew and Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus answered nothing. Even after Pontius Pilate questioned him and said, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? Jesus still answered nothing, causing Pilate to marvel greatly at Jesus' silence and unwillingness to defend himself against these many accusations the religious leaders were bringing against him. No doubt Pilate has seen many men grovel for their lives before him. He has also stood in judgment over many men as the procurator of the Roman province. Yet there was something different about Jesus that Pilate marveled at. Something about him, something about his silence that caused Pilate to be amazed. Jesus had spoken in private with him previously, telling him about his kingdom, but now Jesus just remained silent. Even with all of these charges being thrown against him, he simply remained silent and at peace. He gave no defense. What was Pilate to do? You see, he had investigated the claims regarding Jesus, and he was left amazed, marveling at Jesus. But Pilate still needed to do something. He was amazed, and he marveled at Jesus, but that wasn't enough. He had to do something with him still. He tried to send him back to the religious authorities after finding no fault in him, but all they did is cry out all the more. What could he do? Well, read verses 6 and 7 to find out what Pilate does. It says, When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So when the Sanhedrin mentioned Galilee, they, I believe, hoped it would remind Pilate of the danger of the people from that area, the potential problem Jesus could be. But what it really did is remind Pilate of an opportunity to pass Jesus along to someone else, namely to Herod. Now, the Herod that's mentioned here by Pilate is Herod Antipas. There's a few different Herods that are mentioned in the Bible. Okay? Herod Antipas is the most prominent one uh, that gets the most scripture time. Okay, there's also Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, but Herod Antipas is who we're talking about here. Okay? Um, this is not the first time that we've heard about Herod Antipas in our study of the book of Luke. Initially, he's mentioned in the same place that Pilate was mentioned at the onset of John the Baptist's uh, ministry. He's listed as the Tetrarch of Galilee. A Tetrarch is someone that ruled over a fourth of a kingdom. Before Herod Antipas reigned as king over Galilee, his father, Herod the Great, ruled and reigned over all the land of the Jews. But at his passing, he divided his kingdom into four parts, giving different children uh, opportunities to rule over um, four different parts of the kingdom. Okay? And so uh, we're also told about some interactions that Herod had in the Gospel of Luke, as well as some of the other Gospel accounts with John the Baptist. Okay? Herod Antipas actually threw John the Baptist into prison because John the Baptist spoke out against his marriage with Herodias. Now, Herodias was his brother Philip's wife, his sister-in-law. Okay? That was not good. <laughs> and John let him know that that was not good. He spoke out against it. And he also spoke out about many other things which Herod had done. Now, according to Mark's gospel, Herodias, okay, Herod's wife slash sister-in-law, uh, wanted to kill John the Baptist for the thing, things that he said about their marriage. But she couldn't because Herod actually feared John and believed him to be a just and a holy man, and he protected him against his wife's desire to kill him. That's what Mark chapter 6, verse 20 tells us. We're also told that Herod met with John the Baptist, and he heard from him often and that he enjoyed hearing from him, that he heard him gladly on many different occasions. But all that changed one night at a drunken birthday party of Herod Antipas. 
He and a bunch of his friends were being entertained by Herodias' daughter as she danced before them. And as a reward to Herodias' daughter for pleasing him and the men at his party, he offered Herodias' daughter a gift, the opportunity to name her prize. Okay? Whatever you want, okay? I'll give it to you. You've done such a great job here. And at the counsel of her mother, Herodias' daughter asked for, believe it or not, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Okay? Very gross, very disturbing. Okay? And Herod acquiesced because he didn't want to look the fool in front of his friends and go back on his promise to reward her. And so he ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. And this event, I believe, haunted Herod Antipas. Because we find out later on when he heard news about the ministry of Jesus taking place and the things that he did, that he feared that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead, you know, as if he's going to come after him. Oh my goodness, this is John the Baptist. You know, I killed him, I beheaded him, and now he's come back to life. Herod Antipas, he ruled over the area of Galilee. He had happened to be in Jerusalem at the time in order to take part in the Jewish feast and the happenings within the city. Now, previous to this time, Herod and Pilate did not have a great relationship. We get indication of that here at the end of verse 12. Some people wonder if the execution Pilate ordered of the Galileans I mentioned uh, earlier uh, may have sat wrong with Herod because they were people under his jurisdiction. We can't say with certainty what exactly was the problem with them, but it seemed to have something to do with jurisdiction and authority. Pilate saw this as an opportunity to not only pass the responsibility of dealing with Jesus off to someone else, but it could also be seen as a sort of political favor towards Herod, showing that Pilate was willing to yield jurisdiction to Herod on cases that involved people who came from Galilee. And so, Pilate passed Jesus on to Herod in hopes that Herod would take responsibility for him and deal with him however he saw fit. Even though Pilate believed Jesus to be innocent and that he had done nothing worthy of crucifixion, he was willing to send Jesus off to be tried again, perhaps to even be found guilty of the charges and to be killed by Herod. It was of no care to Pilate, as long as he didn't have to deal with it himself, as long as he could distance himself from Jesus and claim that Jesus wasn't part of his jurisdiction, he felt he was safe. Basically, Pilate was trying to say, Jesus isn't my responsibility, okay? I'm not responsible for having to decide on what to do with him let Herod deal with him. You know, people still try to do the same thing even today. Some people will balk at the identity of Jesus and who he is. They'll say that the answer to the question about who Jesus is is a question that needs to be answered by uh, religious people and that they aren't religious. Okay? They think that they can escape having to make a decision about Jesus because they will claim that Jesus is, in a sense, outside of their jurisdiction that Jesus is for the religious people of this world to figure out, and he wasn't, or, you know, they aren't religious, and so it doesn't matter to them. You know, having lived in Japan for nearly 20 years myself, I've come across a number of Japanese people who try to do similarly, stating that Jesus, well, Jesus is the God of the Westerners, right? And that they don't need to know about him or make a decision about him because Jesus is not part of their jurisdiction here in Japan. Okay? He's for the Westerners to decide. But listen, Jesus isn't just for the religious of this world. He isn't just for the Westerners of this world. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. Okay? That's the truth that we proclaim and love in John, John chapter 3, verse 16, right? One of the most popular quoted verses, for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever, okay, whether American or Japanese or any other nationality, whether religious or agnostic or atheist, okay, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the God of this entire world. He died for us all and we all have a responsibility to decide what to do with Jesus. We cannot escape it. We cannot say, he's not part of my jurisdiction. He's not part of my responsibility. We all have a responsibility to decide upon who Jesus is and what we will do with him. 
Let's look back at our text. We'll take a look at verse 8. It says, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. So when Herod heard that Pilate was sending Jesus his way, he was very excited. He was glad to have Jesus come before him because he had heard so much about him and he hoped to see Jesus perform a miracle. Now, this is interesting to note. Previously, the scripture spoke about how Herod heard about Jesus and feared that he was John the Baptist come back from the dead. He thought this primarily based upon the works Jesus was doing. He had heard of the works he was doing, namely the miracles, Okay, and thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. You know, at one time, while Jesus was journeying towards Jerusalem, a group of Pharisees came to him and told him to get out and depart from that area because Herod, Herod Antipas, actually wanted to kill him. And so while they may not have a lot of uh, one-on-one interaction, they definitely knew about each other. Okay? Jesus responded to them saying, Go tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Okay, so while Herod may be intrigued by Jesus and his ability to perform miracles, Jesus was not a fan of Herod's. Jesus obviously did not approve of the way Herod treated John the Baptist, and we get the sense that he saw him as a a deceitful and crafty man, an evil and cunning man. That's why he referred to him as a fox, okay? Um, uh, It's not a a good... uh, description, right? Read with me me verses 9 and 10, and we'll see what transpired next. It says, then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Stop right there. As Jesus arrived before Herod, Herod began to question him, but to no avail, for Jesus remained silent before Herod. Not only did he remain silent before Herod, Jesus remained silent before all of his accusers as well, the religious authorities who had traveled to Herod in order to present their case before him. Nothing Herod said, nor the religious leaders said, got a response out of Jesus. He was silent before both of them. And again, I believe this begs the question, why? Why would Jesus not defend himself here in the second political trial he was facing? Why didn't he answer any of Herod's questions? Why not answer against the accusation of the religious authorities? You know, we asked the same question last week, and I think the answer could be the same. You know, last week we noted a few possible reasons why this could have been uh, uh, Jesus's actions, why he did this. It was during the second religious trial before Caiaphas, where he remained silent before the many false accusers that were coming and making all these different accusations against him. Again, we noted maybe it was because he just didn't, he knew that they were false and he didn't want to give uh, the dignity uh, of a response, okay? Another thing is it could have been that Jesus was looking to fulfill Scripture, that just like he remained silent during his religious trial, so too he does here in his political trial in order to fulfill what was written by Isaiah the prophet. Again, Isaiah 53, 7, we quoted it last week. It states, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The third possibility was Jesus was giving us an example to follow. Peter writes to us describing this example that he left for us, describing Jesus as the one who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus committed himself to the Father who judges righteously, and we should do the same. You know, when people say all sorts of negative things about us, they make up all sorts of lies about us, just commit it to the Lord, okay? Let God deal with it. God knows the truth, and he knows how to take care of his own. His silence, you know, could be explained by any of those same reasons that he was silent during his religious trials, but I think there's something unique for us to consider in regard to this second political trial, and it's specific to Herod. Herod had spent a lot of time with John the Baptist. Okay? We know that. Okay? We highlighted the fact about how Herod liked to hear what John the Baptist had to say. He went to him and he heard him often. He believed John the Baptist to be a good man, a just and honorable man, a godly man. Now, when you look at John the Baptist and his ministry, nearly every time we hear from John the Baptist in the New Testament, his message is pretty much the same. It is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
right? I have to believe with all my heart that John the Baptist shared the good news of Jesus with Herod on multiple occasions. I have no doubt that John had already testified to Herod who Jesus was. John preached a message of repentance and baptism through water, but he proclaimed there was one coming after him, one mightier than him, one whose sandal strap John wasn't even worthy to loose, and that he would come and baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. John also proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later on in John's ministry, he would be seen and testify to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And so this is the message that John was proclaiming, right? Repent. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God to come to take away your sins. He's baptizing with fire and with the Holy Spirit, okay? Do you think Herod heard these things? (laughs) I can't point to chapter and verse and say, oh, yes, this is exactly where that happened, okay? But every time I see John the Baptist open his mouth, that's what he's saying, okay? And so I believe with all of my heart that Herod knew this, And so with that understanding, it makes me wonder if Jesus remained silent before Herod because Herod had already been given all the information that he needed. There was nothing left to say. You see, Herod didn't need more information. Herod didn't need to see a miracle. Herod needed to finally make a decision upon Jesus once and for all. This was his opportunity to repent. It was an opportunity to acknowledge and recognize who Jesus was, an opportunity that he unfortunately squandered. Let's finish off our text. We'll see what Herod ended up deciding to do with Jesus. Read verses 11 and 12 with me as we wrap this up. It says, Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Instead of bowing before him as king, Herod decided to make, uh, to have his soldiers mock and ridicule Jesus. They treated him with contempt as if he was worthless or despicable. Uh, The wording means that he had no value whatsoever to them. They were disgusted by him and they made a mockery of his kingship. They dressed Jesus up in a gorgeous royal robe. The word gorgeous in the Greek is the word lampros. Okay? It speaks of something that shines brightly like a lamp. Right? Most likely it was a dazzling white robe that Herod had on hand. And after mocking him some more, they sent Jesus back to Pilate. And in next week's study, we're going to see that Herod ended up sending Jesus back, having found that Jesus did nothing wrong that he hadn't done anything that was deserving of the death the religious leaders were clamoring for. And so the verdict from Jesus' second political trial before Herod Antipas was that Jesus was innocent, that he did nothing deserving of death, and there was no fault at all in him. Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the details pertaining to Jesus' third and final political trial as he once again is set before Pontius Pilate, and we're going to look at the sentencing that resulted from it as well. But before we wrap things up here and I let you go this morning, I want to make one more point. The religious authorities, they presented Jesus to Pilate claiming that Jesus said he was the Christ, a king, right? Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? I imagine Herod questioned Jesus about the same thing, seeing as how he mocked him as a king by placing these royal robes upon him. All these people were given an opportunity to question Jesus about his kingship, and each of them came up with their own decisions. The religious leaders questioned Jesus about his position as king, as their Messiah, and they rejected him. When Jesus told them that he was the Christ, their Messiah, the long-awaited king that they had hoped for, they accused him of blasphemy. Pilate examined for himself the evidence presented to him. He listened to the claims of the religious authorities, and he questioned Jesus to find out the truth of the matter for himself. But when presented with truth, he mockingly questioned what truth was in the first place. It's relative. What is truth? He was convinced Jesus was innocent. He didn't believe he had done anything deserving of death, but he couldn't bring himself to surrendering to the truth of who Jesus is. Then there was Herod. 
Herod had been given plenty of opportunity to know everything he could have ever wanted to know about Jesus while spending time with John the Baptist. He had all the information needed to make a decision about Jesus being king, but instead of bowing before him, he mocked him and he ridiculed him. Each had their own opportunity to respond, to decide for themselves whether Jesus was indeed a king worthy of their allegiance, worthy of their surrender, their sacrifice, their service. And I think the question for all of us to ask and ponder is quite similar, right? They asked, are you the king of the Jews, right? And they all want to know, are you the king? Are you the Messiah? Are you king? Are you a king? I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, is Jesus your king? Because it doesn't matter if he's the king of the Jews or the king trying to take over Rome. What really matters or not is whether you identify him as your king, okay? Have you surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Or are you like some of these other people that we looked at today? Okay. Are you like these religious, leader, religious leaders who think it blasphemous to even consider surrendering your life to someone? Or like Pilate who thinks that this really isn't your responsibility, that you don't really need to make a decision, that you know, truth is relative and it really doesn't matter. This is outside of your lane. Listen, a silent decision is still a decision. A decision to not make Jesus your king is a decision against him. The scriptures teach us that you are either for him or you are against him. There is no neutral ground, okay? There is no undecided. Let me get back to you. That's a decision, okay? Or are we like Herod? And maybe we've been coming to church and we've been listening to people talk about Jesus for quite some time. And we've heard all there is to say about the matter, but yet we're still not willing to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus to you? Is He your Lord and Savior? Is He your King? Or have you surrendered your life to Him completely? Or are you like some of these other people? I pray that we can emphatically declare that yes, Jesus Christ is my king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him being our king. We thank you that he, because of what we're going to be looking at here shortly, Lord, his crucifixion, his resurrection, Lord, because of that, Lord, that victory that he won on our behalf, Lord, We've been given an opportunity to be part of his kingdom. We've been invited to be your sons and daughters, daughters of the king, sons of the king. What a tremendous blessing that is, Lord. We give you thanks for it. Lord, I do pray that we have all surrendered ourselves to your lordship. And Lord, I do pray that if there is anybody here that perhaps identifies more with some of these other people that we looked at, maybe the religious leaders who scoff at the idea of surrendering themselves to someone else, and they are the captain of their own ships. Lord, I pray that you would minister to their heart, make them know and realize their need for you. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that's like Pilate and think that's like, well, it's just not for me. Lord, that you would make them to know and understand and realize that you are for everyone. And then we all have to make a choice. Or if there are anybody here that's like Herod, and maybe you've been hearing over and over and over again about Jesus, but you haven't surrendered your life completely to him. And I pray if there's anybody here today, Lord, that today would be the day that they surrender fully to you and receive by faith the grace and forgiveness that you offer to us. Lord, I pray you'd minister to us as we go our ways the rest of this week, continue to remind us of who you are, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.